Welcome to Hyperbaric Living with Dr. Masha podcast. I'm Dr. Masha, naturopathic doctor, hyperbaric expert, and your podcast host, bringing you the cutting-edge interviews and ideas about hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I'm grateful to interview these bright minds and sharing their knowledge and experience in the field of hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Thank you for listening. So let's get started with this week's episode. Hello, and welcome back to Hyperbaric Living Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Masha. Today, I have with me Dr. Corey DeRoma. He's a naturopathic doctor. He works at STRAM Center in Albany, New York. And for the past 20 years, STRAM Center has been providing conventional and natural health treatments using herbal and nutritional therapies, IV therapies. And just recently, although I think it's been more than two years, they've introduced hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Dr. Jeroma has been with STRAM Center for 15 years. As I said, he's a naturopathic doctor, and he specializes in treating tick-borne diseases, which we know as Lyme disease, uh, cancer, and autoimmune uh, diseases using natural therapies. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jeroma. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's great. And today we'll talk about hyperbaric oxygen therapy and tick-borne diseases uh, or Lyme disease, better known as Lyme disease, although uh, it could be caused by other infectious agents, right? Could Correct. you, um, well, let's start from the beginning. Uh, first, you were treating uh, Lyme patients and then uh, you started using hyperbaric oxygen therapies, right? Correct. Yes, what we were finding is with our therapies, we were utilizing IV therapies, IV antibiotic therapies, uh, in combination with other natural therapies to really try to help stimulate a healing process while also treating the infection. And what we were finding is that uh, oftentimes, uh, especially with uh, the chronic infections, we were, um, after treatment, uh, some patients were actually having some of their symptoms coming back and we would have to retreat. Once we started incorporating hyperbaric oxygen therapy, what we we're finding is that the response to treatment actually became uh, quicker and people were actually getting a, uh, patients were seeing a, a better sort of resolution of symptoms and the symptoms were uh, oftentimes not coming back after treatment. And what we're finding with the hyperbaric uh, therapy is that, uh, one, uh, the oxygen is providing, um, it is providing some antimicrobial activity, and it's also helping the penetration of the antibiotics get into cellular tissue at a much deeper level, so we're getting a better penetration of treatment. And I definitely want to come back to that because that's the mm -hmm. interesting part. That the, yes, that's the cherry uh, on the cake, really. But let's start from the beginning. Uh, Lyme disease is um, widespread, especially northern states of U.S., Canada, mm -hmm. all New northern Europe, uh, England, or um, England, Scotland, all mm -hmm. these countries are affected. We're seeing more and more cases diagnosed each year. Uh, 
Uh, and I've always wondered, is it because our immune systems um, are not functioning as well as they did even 50 years ago? And that's why we're seeing more and more cases of Lyme, they're becoming chronic and stuff. Or is it because we have better diagnostic tools to diagnose Lyme disease? Uh, what, what, what's the reason or what is the case here? Why such uh, an endemic pandemic, Lyme pandemic? I think it, it actually could be a little bit of both. I don't know if our immune systems are changing per se, but the I know certainly in the Northeast here, the uh, tick population is higher. Um, we see the ticks infected with the Borrelia bacteria, which is the spirochetal bacteria uh, that, that causes Lyme disease. We see that the ticks are uh, 50 to 60% of the ticks are, are infected. Uh, and so with higher tick populations and with uh, these ticks being, um, you know, sort of infected with these bacteria at higher numbers, uh, we are seeing that the exposure is there, right? And then I think that there's also identification of this as well. You know, now we know that there's Borrelia which is a causative agent of Lyme disease, certainly in the Northeast. But now, um, you know, there are many different strains of, of Borrelia in Europe. There's Borrelia afzelii and greenii. Uh, and in Japan, there's Borrelia miyamotoi, which is uh, actually in the tick-borne relapsing fever group. We have a Midwestern strain. We have a California strain. So there are many different uh, iterations of this uh, Borrelia bacteria that that we're actually now starting to find and identify, and and because of where the tick population is, typically is in the northern hemisphere, uh, and at at the same climate zone, actually in the southern hemisphere, we'll see it in Australia and certain areas there as well, um, and uh, probably uh, climate change is is a contributor as well as as tick migrations actually. Uh, move and they're moving further up north. Actually, actually into Canada, we see uh, higher instances in in uh, in Quebec and Montreal as well. There are also theories that they're mother to fetus transmission. I think that might account uh, for it too. Uh, as far as I know, it hasn't been proved, but it's always there, you know. For Lyme they, disease, yeah. yes, there is actually, uh, yes, a, uh, a mother who is undergoing an active infection can certainly pass to um, their child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In Europe. Uh, yeah, I see. I see cases uh, in Spain uh, per as per Spanish health uh, web page. There, there's no Lyme disease in Spain because ticks that transmit Lyme disease don't exist in Spain. But I'm seeing a lot of cases, and usually from expats, either from United States or from Northern Europe, from England. Uh, tons, mm -hmm. tons. And uh, in countries like Spain and Australia, where presumably there's no Lyme, uh, and we're having a big uh, difficulty getting these people diagnosed because, um, mm -hmm. and this is my next question, diagnosis could be a problem. Uh, is that correct? Do you see that as well, that uh, people can have symptoms, but then their test results will come back clear? Yes, and one of the major issues with that is the uh, testing itself. It is an antibody test, uh, which really is an indirect test. So it just tests your 
uh, your immune system's response. So it's really looking for exposure. It's never really looking for the actual bacteria itself. Uh, and what we find is that with the the, the first, uh, so it, certainly in this country, we use a, um, a two-tiered method. And so there's a, a screening Lyme antibody test, which is known as an ELISA test, just to see if you have any antibodies being produced. And if that comes back positive, then it reflexes to what's called the confirmatory test, which is the Western blot. And the Western blot shows an array of antibodies uh, to the Lyme bacteria. And that is actually a more, typically a more sensitive test. Uh, now, the first test as a screen test is, uh, research has shown that it may only be about 50% sensitive. So you could be missing half of the cases, right? So basically we could be getting uh, false negatives. Uh, and so we never actually, uh, the, in those patients, uh, they're, they're deemed not to have Lyme disease and they never actually get to a Western blot. Uh, what we do at our center is, is we actually utilize multiple Western blots from different labs to really see if there are antibodies that are showing up that are specific to the Lyme bacteria. And that really tells us that there's been exposure, right? And if they have symptoms and that gives us the clinical diagnosis of a Lyme infection. Lyme is quite difficult to diagnose, and this is for my listeners. Uh, it's called mm -hmm. great imitator because it imitates 100 other things uh, from chronic uh, fatigue syndrome to heavy metal toxicity to whatnot. It takes a skilled uh, practitioner to uh, even suspect that a patient could be having Lyme and save that patient time and money because it's quite frustrating going from one doctor to another, trying to get the diagnosis. And I'm really glad to hear that you're utilizing several Western blot tests, you know, to, to actually make this journey a lot easier, at least getting the diagnosis. Uh, with Lyme, also, we need to mention that there are co-infections that need to be tested for. Um, so other bacteria that usually or a lot of times or in some cases are present as well. Uh, and uh, they Correct. produce uh, sort of different symptoms, so to say. And when you're seeing mm -hmm. Lyme patients day in, day out, you learn from your clinical experience to distinguish, okay, this is probably Babesia uh, or, or this is Rickettsia or this, this could be that. So um, yes. Better to go to someone who specializes in treating this kind of uh, patients if you suspect that you might be having Lyme disease. And once the person mm -hmm. gets diagnosed, what is your typical uh, protocol? How, well, where, where do you take it from there? So again, we are uh, fairly complete in how we, uh, how we do our testing. So we will not only run diagnostic tests for, for Lyme and Western blots. As you mentioned, we will do testing for babesiosis, which is a tick-borne parasitic infection that can cause uh, headaches, fevers, uh, shortness of breath, anemia, and sweats, especially drenching night sweats. We will check for anaplasmosis or lichiosis and Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which are the rickettsial bacterial infections, which tend to cause high fever and extreme headaches also joint pain and fatigue. Uh, we will also check for Bartonella, which is uh, commonly known as cat scratch fever. Uh, Bartonella is an interesting bacterial infection because it can be passed by ticks, but 
also other hard-shelled biting insects we call ectoparasites, and that's lice, fleas, uh, sand flies, chiggers, and uh, that can also lead to some, uh, some of these chronic symptoms as well. Uh, typically with Bartonella, we might see more vascular issues or, or rashes, uh, the, the, the stretch marks, right, sort of is one of the classic signs of, the, uh, of Bartonella. But our treatments then will, uh, you know, be determined based on what we find through testing, uh, you know, because oftentimes uh, when you get a tick bite, you know, you can potentially get uh, a Lyme infection, but what if, you know, you're also having symptoms of babesiosis as well. So the treatment might look like antibiotics or antibacterial treatments for the Lyme infection, but antiparasitic therapies for the uh, parasitic infection. Uh, and so that is something that, that we might actually combine at the same time, right? And so that is part of uh, sometimes figuring out what uh, which agent is causing which symptoms, because if you go on antibiotics, and you're still having uh, either sweats or, or headaches, we might think, oh, okay, maybe there's also a Babesia infection and, and address that as well, right? Um, but predominantly for our treatments, we will use um, conventional therapies. These are infections, so oftentimes we we'll use anti-infectives. And then what I like to do is uh, also look to support the body through fighting the infection. Right, so it's always about helping to stimulate the immune response, uh, looking for any nutritional deficiencies that somebody might have, because basically these infections really will uh, sort of rob your body of nutrients, right? Really deplete them. So we'll see lower B12 levels, we'll see lower iron levels, we'll see lower vitamin D levels. These are all things that you know will definitely contribute to fatigue, neurological symptoms, brain fog, cognitive dysfunction. So these are all things that we'll look to address at the same time of, of treatment, right? And then, of course, with antibiotic therapy, we'll use probiotics as well to sort of help support the gut microbiome through the treatment. So to summarize that, you would give conventional treatment, which is antibiotic treatment, but you would also, also add uh, other therapies that would sort of um, help the terrain because it's it's always about the terrain. I mean, yes, it is about the infectious agent, mm -hmm. but infectious, we all experience uh, illnesses differently. Uh, why? Because terrain is different. Why three people in the mm -hmm. same room, uh, can, uh, you know, uh, having a conversation with somebody who has influenza, but only one will get sick. Uh, mm -hmm. It's the terrain, same with Lyme disease, and it's important to get that supportive treatment because the body needs to have resources to fight the infection. Um, and Correct. are you yeah. um, using any other therapies except for hyperbarics? I will get to hyperbarics because this is mm -hmm. what the show is about. I will definitely right. get there. But I wanted to hear more, like, do you use IV therapies as well? Like maybe ozone therapy? What, what else do you use in the clinic? Yeah, so, right. So what we do is we'll typically, uh, so we'll start oftentimes with oral therapies and see what the response is there. Because oftentimes, you know, our combination of uh, medications and, uh, and support, right, uh, people do typically get better and they may get a, 
60 to 80% response even in the first month of treatment, especially for those who really have not been, been treated for this before, right? Uh, for those who have uh, tried treatments in the past, who have failed potentially other treatments, uh, who still have symptoms, we might uh, go with actual um, more aggressive treatments, right? So we may actually combine uh, IV therapies, IV antibiotic therapies, high-dose vitamin C therapy, which high-dose uh, IV vitamin C uh, you know, acts as a prooxidant. So we'll use it for, uh, for viral infections. We'll also use it for bacterial infections as well because high-dose IV vitamin C can actually work well as an anti-infective. We'll combine that then with hyperbaric oxygen therapy as well because both therapies are pro-oxidant therapies. They tend to uh, increase actually oxidative stress, which we can talk about when we talk about some of the mechanisms of, of hyperbaric oxygen therapy, but increasing oxidative stress, which actually uh, does kill things like uh, bacteria and microorganisms that, that, that typically do not, they're anaerobic, so they typically do not have mechanisms to fight oxidative stress. Uh, and, and even cancer, right? So it sort of works on a, a similar mechanism. Uh, so we'll combine those therapies, typically IV antibiotic therapies, uh, IV vitamin C. We utilize IV NAD+. Plus. NAD+, plus is a nicotinamide B2 derivative that um, actually helps to uh, increase uh, cellular energy, right? Uh, and so we'll we'll use that as well, and um, and we'll also utilize uh, uh, other vitamin and nutrient therapies, uh, glutathione as a uh, major detoxicant as well. So typically we'll have our patients getting uh, glutathione pushes every day, actually with with their treatments. I see. So let's say a patient qualifies for hyperbaric oxygen therapy, a Lyme patient. Uh, let's say they mm -hmm. failed some treatments in the past or treatments were not administered properly because that can happen too. And I think that's the biggest problem with uh, patients who are diagnosed with acute Lyme disease. They're just getting the antibiotics um, for two weeks, but they're not followed um, through properly and they might relapse and they might still develop chronic Lyme. So let's say you get this patient and they qualify for hyperbaric oxygen treatment. How do you administer that? Like, do you start from the beginning of the treatment or it's something that comes into the picture, I don't know, in the second month of the treatment and other specific uh, maybe pressures that you see from your clin clinical experience that work better? Um, I'd love to hear all of that because I, there are a lot of Lyme patients out there listening to this podcast. And usually when I look at the statistics, uh, episodes about Lyme disease it tend to do really well. So it, it's it's obviously a problem and everybody's looking for solutions. So I would like to hear your opinion. Uh, how do you do it and your approach and the results, of course? Sure. Oftentimes, so we can utilize hyperbaric oxygen therapy with both oral antibiotic therapy and IV antibiotic therapy. And oftentimes we'll, we'll, we will do it at the same time. Uh, and uh, when, when patients come to our center, uh, you mentioned Northern Europe, we've actually had 
especially uh, pre-COVID times, uh, quite a number of international patients coming from, from Ireland and the UK uh, to, to our center for treatment. And they, they would get uh, five days a week IV therapies and hyperbaric oxygen therapy at the same time. And certainly for people who are local to this area, uh, they, they, they oftentimes uh, will do that for about four weeks. Um, uh, yeah, let me, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but when you say at the same time, you, you don't mean that they're getting IV inside the hyperbaric chamber, right? They get an IV and then they get into hyperbaric chamber or the other way around. That is correct. Right. Yes. Yeah. Just to clarify. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Yes. Correct. So you combine that and how many sessions typically do you find um, is sufficient or is effective for somebody who has Lyme? So our therapies typically are in uh, four-week increments, and then we'll reassess at the end of four weeks. And that gives us, um, you know, five days a week. So it gives us 20 days, really, of treatment. Uh, and so we'll do 20 hyperbaric uh, oxygen treatments during that time. So five days a week for four weeks. Uh, and that'll also be with the antibiotics and the IV therapy support as well. And what pressure do you use? Like, where do you start? So we'll start at 1.3. And so one atmosphere being, uh, you know, at the sea level. Atmospheric yeah. pressure at sea level, correct. And then we'll go up to 1.3 for the first treatment, usually without oxygen, because we don't want to incur a high amount of ox oxidative stress in the first treatment. And then we'll go up to 1.5, then 1.75, and then 2.0, uh, or and then up to 2.2. We actually have the capability of going up to 2.4 now as well. So we'll usually use the, the highest pressures for uh, for sometimes for more neurological symptoms. So um, musculoskeletal symptoms would respond better to lower pressures and neurological symptoms would respond better to higher pressures. Is that correct? Did I hear that? Typically, that, that's what we've been seeing. Mm -hmm. Well, th that's interesting. So in this 20 sessions, you would start lower at 1.3 and then eventually you would increase it to go to one to 2.2 and even now now you're you're uh, able to to get patients to 2.4 and then you reassess to see if more uh, sessions are required. Correct. Mm -hmm. And we oftentimes have patients fill out a pre-HBOT survey of their symptoms and rate their symptoms, and uh, they'll do that ongoing during the treatment. Do you see Herx's reactions uh, with those undergoing? Um, so Herx's reactions is when uh, the body just can't cope with, with all the detoxification and killing the infectious agent process that's going inside the body, and you might feel... Yucky. Let's put it this way. Not well. Do you see these Herx reactions? Right. So, correct. So, in your description of a Herxheimer reaction, uh, we're getting basically uh, toxins from the die-off of the bacteria and probably an inflammatory immune response uh, to the bacteria itself as well. So, this is usually a good sign that we're on the right track with treatment because 
that gives us an indication that the immune system is is responding, that the body is reacting. This is usually a uh, a temporary reaction, usually for only uh, sometimes a day, maybe up uh, to several days, maybe up to a week. But um, since hyperbaric oxygen therapy is a it, it, in and of itself its own therapy that has antimicrobial activity. Uh, and also induces oxidative stress, we definitely do see an increase in these symptoms um, when, when it's initiated. And when you said you reassess after 20 sessions, but um, from your experience, how many sessions are typically needed? Well, I understand that one patient needs 20 sessions, another patient need 100, needs 120 sessions, but on average, let's, let's say on average. On average, we probably see the best adaptive effect and the best effective treatment with, with 40 treatments. So we're looking at, at two months of, of treatment. And 20, sometimes, sometimes you go over 40, right? So some people receive yes. more than 40. Yes. What we find is that you can, you can do 20 to 40 and then afterwards almost do maintenance, right? So you might not need to do it every day, but you could do it one to two times a week because some of the responses that the, that the body has to the hyperbaric oxygen therapy itself is an adaptive response. It's actually not unlike exercise, right? So if you start in an exercise program and you only exercise once a week for eight weeks, probably not gonna incur a huge amount of change in your body, right? But if you started exercising five days per week for eight weeks, then you're going to see a physical change in the body. There's going to be adaptive responses. You may gain more strength, more muscle, better cardiovascular. Uh, uh, and, and so you get to a particular level. And then after that, it's almost like you can maintain it, right? And then mm -hmm. if you exercise one or two days per week, you could almost you know, sort of maintain that change that that you uh, that you incurred over that first first eight weeks of, of uh, exercise, so we'll see a similar thing with the hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Uh, if you were to do it initially once a week for eight weeks, probably not going to have that dramatic of an effect with it. But if you did it every day, the body's are what it's doing is it's adapting to the higher amounts of oxygen that it's receiving. And part of that adaptive response is uh, creating more antioxidants to handle the, the oxidative stress that the oxygen is incurring. Uh, and so you actually gain uh, an increase in antioxidants. Uh, and, um, and so that is part of the adaptive response. The other is, is stem cells, right? So we're actually increasing uh, the body's ability to create stem cells, and this is gonna happen with repeated uh, doses of oxygen over over that period of time. And that will happen with continuous use of hyperbarics. That, I think that's important. Correct. This is what I see from my experience and from clinical studies. 
that um, especially for the stem cells, you need continuous exposure. So doing one hyperbarics today and another another session in two weeks, it's not going to do much to stem cells. Um, unfortunately, it's got to be five times a week, four times a week, or whatever is the protocol that your physician is recommending. Um, mm-hmm. So you've mentioned uh, the mechanisms. You, you've said that first, uh, or maybe not first, but you've mentioned it first, the antimicrobial effect mm-hmm. of hyperbaric oxygen, then uh, increased production of antioxidants because it's a pro-oxidant mm-hmm. therapy, right? So um, it puts your body into oxidative stress and then your body starts to produce more endogenous, internally produced antioxidants. Are there more or other uh, mechanisms that in hyperbaric oxygen therapy that you think are responsible for its uh, positive effect for Lyme patients? Yes. So what we see with an inflammatory condition, uh, part of what the immune system does, so the immune system is designed to kill and attack, right? So uh, to attack these invaders, these, these uh, foreign microorganisms. But its other mechanism is to repair the damage that has been done by um, by these microorganisms, right? And by actual attack, right? Because that immune system attack produces a lot of inflammation. Correct. It does. So it, so it's, and it's interesting because like if you were to hurt yourself, right? If you were to twist your ankle and then you have a swollen ankle. So that's your immune system trying to repair that damage to that tissue. So that's, that's from trauma, right? Uh, what we get from infections is that we get a same level of trauma, but at a much smaller level, typically at a molecular and cellular level, right? And so if these cells are incurring damage, then that's when you get an immune response. That's why we get so sick when we get viral infections because viruses, when they infect cells, they actually lyse those cells to infect new cells. And so that cellular lysis actually incurs a, a very strong immune response because the immune system is sensing damage to cells, right? And then it's an afterthought that it actually finds the viruses to actually kill the, to, to target killed viruses because it, it's sensing the damage, then it goes to the area and it, it finds out well, what's, you know, causing the damage. Uh, Lyme disease, because it's a bacterial organism, it actually does not need to infect cells to replicate. They can replicate on their own and they can actually uh, not replicate or slow growing forms. Uh, and so that is the problem with the infection, right? So it can hide intracellularly and the immune system might not actually be aware that it's even there because it's not really incurring a lot of damage to that particular cell, right? Uh, and so that's what we see with these uh, microorganisms, this immune response that is uh, causing all this damage. And so oxygen, what does it do? It's healing, right? It heals the cellular structure, it heals the tissues. And what we see then is that, you know, the damage that is caused by the infection is actually getting repaired. So if you can kill the infection or, or at least reduce it while at the same time healing the cellular tissues and the structures with oxygen, then that's why we're getting uh, this this faster response to improve symptoms. Now the body has a self uh, ability to heal, 
and it can heal and it will over time. But uh, depending on the amount of damage that's incurred uh, to the body, that amount of time could be a month, but it could be six months, it could be a year, right? So this is not unlike uh, you know, what we've seen with COVID uh, infections over the past couple of years, right? That this is a viral infection that tends to cause a lot of inf inflammation. It, it uh, affects people differently. Uh, for some people, it can be very severe. For others, it can be a very minor infection. And then for some, they can have uh, sort of post-infection consequences, right? Uh, brain fog, fatigue, uh, you know, uh, uh, chronic uh, aches and pains and joint pain and so forth. So, um, and, and that is likely sort of a, a chronic inflammatory response that's happening after the infection. Right. Which so, uh, hyperbarics so, helps to diminish this inflammatory exactly, response. Because and it's doing a yeah, very I mean, similar thing. It's helping to repair the damage that has been incurred by the inflammatory response. And then another mechanism, uh, if we actually look a little bit further and deeper, is that when there is inflammation and inflammation in the tissues, there is actually uh, hypoxia that incurs. So a lack there of is oxygen. a lower. Right, there is a lower level of oxygen in the tissues. And so when that happens, there's actually a protein called hypoxia-inducible factor, and it is sensitive to low levels of oxygen. And so when the oxygen levels get low, this hypoxia-inducible factor, or HIF, uh, actually stimulates NF-kappa-B, which is one of the major drivers of the inflammatory response. So in low oxygen levels, you actually incur more inflammation. And they actually did studies on this uh, in, in high altitude climbers because at high altitudes where there is lower amounts of oxygen, they actually incur a lot more uh, inflammation, cerebral edema, pulmonary edema due to lack of oxygen. And so that's, that's why this actually has been investigated. So low oxygen levels actually does uh, incur more inflammation. So when we actually uh, utilize hyperbaric oxygen therapy and, and increase oxygen to that area, we basically reduce uh, this HIF factor and therefore we inhibit that inflammatory response and it actually has a direct mechanism for decreasing inflammation. Well, thank you for explaining this. I always like, I, I'm a nerd. I love, you know, to dig deep inside and like know how is this happening, the physiology. And guys, by mm -hmm. the way, as part of um, Hyperbaric Living Podcast, as part of the initiative, we offer free consultations to see if hyperbaric oxygen therapy can be right for you. So the link to that free consultation is in the podcast or the video description. Uh, please uh, feel free to book a consultation. Uh, thank you for explaining this, Dr. Corey. I have several more questions questions for you. And uh, one is the pressure. We have people who only have uh, soft chambers that go up to mm -hmm. 1.3. And some of them have Lyme disease. What would you recommend? And maybe they don't have access. They, they don't have a clinic that offers higher pressure um, treatments that they need to travel. There could be many reasons. What would you, what would be your advice to these people? Is um, is higher pressure absolutely a must or can they get away with 1.3 or like what, what is the 
Um, what is your experience? Yes. So in our experience, a pressure above atmospheric pressure, sea level, is still going to be effective because in uh, how hyperbaric oxygen therapy works is it actually uses um, a couple of laws. One, one main law, Boyle's law, is that the pressure actually reduces the size of gases, right? And reduces it to the point where it sort of shrinks the oxygen bubble so that it can, uh, the oxygen can diffuse readily into, into your plasma. So into the liquid part of your blood, not, not the red blood cells, not the hemoglobin. And so uh, this is an interesting concept because it, it's been very difficult sometimes to study hyperbaric oxygen therapy for conditions because they've had a hard time doing placebo, right? So you yeah. put somebody in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber and, and sort of people can feel pressure, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, so you can't really say that, uh, you know, you can't put somebody in a, in a chamber with no pressure because typically, you know, they won't feel it maybe in the ears they won't uh, feel that, that pressure feeling. So uh, what they do for, for what they call sort of sham HBOT is that they uh, put them at the lowest pressure at 1.3, give them an oxygen mask, but actually don't give actual oxygen. They're just regular rim air, which rim air is still 20% oxygenated. Uh, and then, um, uh, and then what they'll do is, is, uh, have the other cohorts sort of do the, the actual treatments at higher pressures with oxygen. But what they always find is that the people in the placebo group and the sham group, uh, actually get better. Their, improve, their symptoms yeah. improve, mm-hmm. right? And that's because the pressure, even at that lower pressure at 1.3 and just the 20% oxygen still drives more oxygen into the plasma and still drive uh, a higher oxygen response. Now, it's not going to be higher than what you can get at 2.0 receiving uh, greater than 90% oxygen, but it's still higher oxygen than what your body can get physiologically and even what your body can get uh, through the use of, um, uh, you know, just uh, oxygen, uh, nasal cannula oxygen, right? For people who are, you know, like COPD with low oxygen saturation, um, you know, those those types of treatments are only going to be effective for saturating hemoglobin and, and, and blood for people who have lung issues, right? Like emphysema and so forth. But, uh, but the physiology of the pressure of a hyperbaric oxygen therapy, the pressure is what makes it important because that's what actually causes the, uh, the gases to actually diffuse into the plasma. And therefore, from there, uh, it's actually called Henry's Law. It can go, the uh, gases can go from uh, higher, uh, higher amounts to lower amounts, right? So that's why it's going to diffuse into tissues. Uh, and so, you know, basically we're using some of the, the physiology, right? The science with the pressure to really deliver that oxygen to, to the tissues. 
Thank you. Uh, thank you for the explanation. So I think take home message, if uh, you only have access to 1.3, then use what you have access to and consult with the practitioner. Correct. I think that's also needs to be stressed because uh, it needs you need to do things um, under the guidance. I wouldn't say under supervision, but not necessarily under the guidance of a practitioner who knows what, what, what they're doing, who's experienced in treating Lyme disease um, and and uh, who understands um, who understands the possible outcomes and, and can help guide you. Are there any contraindications for patients who have Lyme to using hyperbaric oxygen? Um, there aren't many. Uh, typical, the, the standard contraindications with hyperbaric oxygen therapy, uh, certain types of lung issues, certainly like pneumothorax or, or blobs. Um, uh, you have certain types of, um, you know, potentially like ear infections or middle ear infections, that type of thing, uh, doing hyperbaric at that same time, uh, would, would probably not be advisable, but we have not seen, uh, for our, our Lyme patients for the symptoms, uh, that are involved with Lyme disease. We, we really don't see a lot of contraindications at all. Thank you for um, clarifying and, this. Yeah. yeah. And older people, uh, one of the issues might be sometimes uh, cataracts of mm -hmm. the lens. The lens actually is is something that is avascular and and uh, so therefore does not have any antioxidants. So over time, that's actually why the lens gets cloudy uh, and we develop uh, cataracts. It's, it's actually due to oxidative stress over many, many years. Uh, and so if you do many, uh, typically it's probably um, over a hundred uh, hyperbaric oxygen treatments that actually can occur, uh, uh, you know, this this uh, uh, cloudiness of the lens due to the the higher, um, you know, the the higher uh, oxidative stress that we're incurring. And if you already have cataracts, sometimes that actually would uh, would increase that. Right, so but, that could uh, be one contraindication. Yeah, I wanted to add to that. That's only on really higher pressures above 2.2. Correct. And mm -hmm. um, for there's been studies that have been done in, uh, I think, over 120 sessions. So I think if you're doing yeah, so less than 100, 100 yep. or 120 sessions and at high pressure, then you maybe want to get that checked. You know, um, mm -hmm. but uh, normally, uh, first at lower pressures and at lower number of sessions, we don't see that happening. Um, it's in the literature, but it's good to know, and it's good, you know, to be proactive rather than reactive, and you know, get that checked. Uh, Dr. Corey, if people want to find you, where can they find you? Because um, as I said, um, many patients, and I have a big audience in U.S. So patients uh, who are listening or people who suspect they have Lyme or who already have the Lyme diagnosis, maybe they're in your area, in your state. How can they find you? So the best access is going to be, of course, the Internet, right? We all use the Internet. So uh, strandcenter.com. Uh, we have a great website that really uh, is very descriptive and describes a lot of our therapies that we offer. Uh, we are multidisciplinary, so we have many different types of practitioners. Uh, I, of course, am a naturopathic doctor, but we also have a nurse practitioner, physician assistant, acupuncturist, licensed massage therapist, dietitian, 
Dr. Stram, who's a medical doctor. We have a team of nursing staff. Uh, and so we, 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 you know, we bring all these uh, expertise together. And that's really what our patients get when they come to see us is, is the expertise of, of all of us. Uh, we do case reviews uh, once a week, every week with the full team of providers and nurses uh, to really try to get our minds together on, on sometimes some of the toughest cases to, uh, to really try to uh, come up with the best solutions and the best treatments for them. And, and of course, uh, you know, oftentimes many minds is, is better than one mind, right? Yeah, and one brain is good, but two brains is better. And, and so forth, right. We also have uh, two new naturopathic doctors. We are opening a new clinic in, in Burlington, Vermont. Uh, it is in process, and that should be open in June or July of this year. And uh, Burlington is, uh, of course, you know, relatively close to, to Canada and, and Montreal. Um, and uh, we are uh, utilizing hyperbaric oxygen therapy in that office as well. We'll actually have a larger two-person chamber and also a, uh, a single mono chamber as well. Uh, and they are higher pressure chambers, so they will get up to 2.0. Uh, and um, and really, we're looking to uh, expand the type of medicine that we do because we believe this multidisciplinary approach is really the medicine of the future, rather than this sort of uh, a single sort of medicine approach going to different specialists looking at sort of treating you know sort of one organ system at a time. Right? As you know, as we are naturopaths, we we look at the whole body. Right. And, and treat more with with a more uh, whole body approach, uh, and and look at all symptoms, and and really try to um, get that person back to to overall health. Yeah, I agree. I also a big believer in uh, integrative medicine and integrating different modalities, different therapies to get the best possible outcome for the patient. Um, so, wanted to thank you mm -hmm. from the bottom of my heart for all the work that you do over there across the ocean from me and all, right. uh, all the care um, and giving people hope. I think it's super important because it's psychology, um, to, it, it, it takes up a huge part in, in, in any disease and in any recovery and uh, having cases where people have recovered uh, gives other people hope because Lyme can be, mm -hmm. can be difficult. Um, a lot of times, oftentimes, um, it's it's a difficult diagnosis. It's a chronic diagnosis. So there is a center that is treating um, Lyme disease with success or patients with Lyme disease because we don't treat a disease, we treat a patient. Um, mm -hmm. And it was a pleasure having you on the show. And guys, if um, if you enjoyed the episode, please, and you think somebody can benefit from this information, please share it with your friend. Um, don't forget to subscribe to my podcast, my YouTube channel to receive new episodes every week. And uh, I'll see you next week. And thank you, Dr. Corey. All right. Thank you for having me.